Hello and welcome back to Pitch Books Invisible Capital Podcast. Today we're kicking off season three, which will take a look at the evolving impact of the private markets on our lives. I'm Adam Lewis, a reporter for PitchBook News, and I'll be trading hosting duties this season with PitchBook News editor Alec Davis. In today's episode, we'll begin with SPACs, aka special purpose acquisition companies, aka blank check companies, which have become the talk of the finance world over the past year. For private equity, they present an interesting dilemma. On the one hand, they represent an opportunity to buy more companies without using their own money, which is every investor's dream. And on the other hand, they've led to a massive increase in competition for a finite number of companies, often driving up the price. They've also become an option for private equity firms to cash in on their investment. We saw a recent example of that when Abri Partners sold Core Wireless, a telecom company based in Atlanta, to a blank check company backed by Cerberus Capital Management in a deal that valued Core at around $1 billion. So far, there have been no signs that these sort of SPAC deals will slow down. In our recent Private Equity Outlook webinar, our analysts Dylan Cox and Wiley Fernio made some predictions about private equity, and that included Wiley making a bold prediction about the continued popularity of SPACs this year. I think there's going to be a good amount of SPAC deal activity, and so by this, it's, it's, the prediction is at least 20 private equity-backed companies will enter the U.S. public markets through a reverse merger with a SPAC. And so we can you know, obviously see the fundraising activity that's happened with SPACs just last year in terms of you know, IPOs, and we're already, I believe, the second highest year ever in 2021 in terms of SPAC fundraising just you know, four weeks into the year. And so it really shows that that has not slowed down. Um, it's interesting because a couple of the deals that we have seen, um, you know, we saw Blackstone recently agree to sell a light to us back at a $7.3 billion valuation. We've seen Blackstone and CBC look to sell PaySafe to us back at a uh, $9 billion valuation. And, and Blackstone, I think, especially in the US market is kind of an industry bellwether. And so while there may have only been two or three private equity backed companies to go public via a SPAC last year, we think that's easily going to go up tenfold and you know, 20 might actually look conservative, we'll see. There's also been several private equity backed SPACs. So whether the sponsor was HIG or Tom Bravo, you know, it's interesting to see private equity get involved in this in a kind of different way. And so maybe being on the, the buy side of the SPAC as well as on the sell side or sponsor side, um, I should say. Um, and so, you know, kind of anecdotally, there's one upper middle market firm that was, you know, giving a talk and, and they said that they would, they are currently receiving over a dozen phone calls a week from different SPAC sponsors that have pilfered through their current portfolio companies and say like, hey, we focus on financial services. We think we would buy any of these three companies. Let us know when you want to sell or they'll just, you know, have unsolicited offers. And so these SPACs are extremely hungry to get a deal done. As you know, I'm sure a lot of you know, that the structure is that they typically have a kind of a two-year call option, basically, to, to get some of these deals done. And, and with the way the promote works, you are highly incentivized to get a deal done. And sometimes it doesn't really matter as much on the price. And so while we may see some changes to governance, you know, SPAC activity, we think is definitely going to pick up. The one caveat I would say is that, you know, a lot of these deals, 
you're maybe selling 20 or 30% of the shares and the rest you kind of have to have in the public markets that you sell down over time. It does give you additional upside potential, but a lot of the sponsors out there that we've talked to are, are a little hesitant. So I think SPACs will have to really pay up to win some of these deals. So much like IPOs out of portfolio companies when they're not full majority stake liquidity events all at once, but sort of come over time. Exactly. SPACs have drawn increased scrutiny of late with more short sellers emerging to weigh down the share price of companies such as Clover Health, Nikola, and Lucid Motors, all of which went through a reverse merger with a SPAC to enter the public market. And with unproven investors and celebrities such as Alex Rodriguez, Colin Kaepernick, and even Sammy Hagar of Van Halen fame jumping into the SPAC frenzy, it's fair to wonder if SPACs have reached bubble territory or whether they'll face more scrutiny from regulators. Here's Wiley again. You know, I think TBD, I'm not going to predict anything on, on the regulatory side just because I, I think that can and does change pretty frequently. But I think we've seen a real hunger for SPACs because they help solve a financing issue for complex companies. And so whether it's this, um, you know, Dial Alrock deal where it was it's a complex deal to have to combine two different asset managers and go public simultaneously. And, and really the only option that they saw was to do it via a SPAC, whether it's, you know, the, the pay safe deal where CBC and Blackstone are exiting. I, I think it's an attractive option in a lot of cases. And, you know, I would say there's, I think a better chance for regulatory oversight or, you know, scrutiny if, Maybe the stack sponsors hadn't increased in, in their quality in the last year, especially. But now that we're seeing what I would argue is a, a much more institutional base in terms of SPAC sponsors, I, I think that risk kind of goes down quite a bit, especially as we're seeing more you know, private equity or, or, or large banks and asset managers back some of these facts. It's, it's no longer you know, the dark Wall Street underbelly where there's you know, kind of sketchy financing option for maybe lower quality companies. I think that's kind of changed pretty substantially in the last 18 months. So I would push back a little bit on that. The great SPAC boom of 2020 came in a year that saw PE fundraising decline to a five-year low during the pandemic. But with vaccinations picking up, fundraising is expected to rebound this year. Institutional investors such as pensions and endowments have signaled they want to increase their allocation to investment funds such as private equity. Both Wiley and Dylan predicted PE fundraising in the U.S. will exceed $330 billion in 2021, setting an annual record. And the sector is already off to a raucous start. Last month, CDNR amassed $16 billion for its latest flagship fund, blowing past a $13 billion target. Here's Dylan predicting a continuation of this trend. Uh, we think U.S. PE fundraising will surpass $330 billion uh, in 2021. That would be a new record. Uh, for that, for the, if we reach that figure, um, you know, even surpassing pre-global financial crisis records. A couple main reasons we expect that to take place. First is that institutional allocators, uh, so sovereign wealth funds, endowments, foundations, insurance companies, uh, pension funds, um, both anecdotally and in survey data, they're saying that they're looking to increase their target allocations uh, both to private equity and to private markets or alts more broadly. Um, and, and so as, as those target allocations increase, you know, we expect that to take a couple of years for them to meet those target allocations. Um, and, and fund managers have been more than happy to, to oblige. They've been 
increasing their target fund sizes, taking on more and more commitments, um, especially in private equity in the last few years. I, I think I looked at some data just the other day and upwards of 90%, if I'm not mistaken, 95% of all funds uh, are larger than their, than their predecessor vehicles. Um, so really growth across the board for PE fund managers. Uh, the second reason we might see fundraising grow quite substantially uh, is, is something we, we refer to as the reverse denominator effect. So in, in past crises in the global financial crisis, when we saw public equity portfolios and other parts of institutional portfolios uh, really take a nosedive in, in, in a downturn like that, it effectively, it, it increases your effective allocation to private markets. And so in a long bull market like this, or, or in the rally that we've seen since last March, um, and it has the opposite effect. And, and institutional investors are effectively underallocated or often put below their targets because the other parts of their portfolio are growing uh, in value so much. Um, and, and so even if their targets are remaining constant, their uh, you know, sort of dollar allocations to the asset class will have to increase. Uh, we've already seen quite a few fund managers hold final closes or announce large fundraises this year. Um, Wiley, you and I were talking before we, we got in the air about, uh, I believe it's a Toma Bravo fund, about $20 billion that's in the market right now, and a couple other tech-focused funds that, that are really uh, driving a lot of this growth. Yeah, exactly. We've also seen, you know, Dial, the big GP6 manager, could be closing on about a $10 billion fund here in the you know first or second quarter. And yeah, I think Hellman Friedman also launched a, a $20 billion fund. So extreme fundraising activity already. Over the past year, the public markets have seen company valuations soar as retail investors dove headfirst into the market for the first time. Meanwhile, many PE firms in the U.S. were scouring for bargains to find companies that were negatively impacted by COVID-19. For investors such as Apollo Global Management, the drop in valuations proved to be an opportunity. The firm tapped its hybrid value fund to pour billions into distressed companies such as Expedia and Vistaprint making pipe deals that have already paid off. But those bargains may be few and far between as valuations are expected to once again skyrocket in 2021 as the economy rebounds. Here's Dylan again on our predictions for valuations. We're predicting that 20% of buyouts, so one-fifth of them, will be priced above 20 times EBITDA. Uh, similar to Wiley's prediction about SPACs, you know, I think 20 was sort of a number we had to pull out of the sky. But the point here, I think, is that the broader point is that pricing is set to increase for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, one of one of those is just that public equity comps are increasing in valuation as well. Um, you know, if you look at price to earnings ratio for the S&P 500, uh, they're well above where they were one to five years ago. Um, and of course, private private assets are marked to market with with their public comps. Um, the second reason is that the composition of private equity targets is changing. We mentioned some of those tech-focused funds earlier. Um, it's more, more often the case today that private equity firms are, are not looking at your typical mid-market industrial firms that are maybe being carved out somewhere, but they're uh, relatively young, high-growth companies with a lot of runway to go. And so sometimes they're even valued on a multiple of revenue, not EBITDA. Um, and so if you look at multiples of EBITDA, it's um, can be pretty astounding. It's it's not uncommon these days to see, you know, we see some transactions in the last year at 30 or 40 times EBITDA for some of these businesses, which for a lot of um, private equity managers probably sounds 
unrealistic or, or just outrageously off the charts, but it's what the data uh, really proves out. And I, I think that point is definitely something that needs to be, I think, maybe even further gone into, which is that, you know, I think private equity firms in general have been looking at different types of deals. And it's, it's been really interesting to watch kind of the transition from, yeah, like the, the cost cutting financial engineering into more of like the growth aspect. And so whether that is technology or, or healthcare or some of these other you know, even certain industrial companies that are pretty quickly growing. There's a lot of interest in private equity and, and paying up for a little bit of a quality asset and then figuring out how to, you know, still be able to eke out a, a pretty attractive return from that. And so, yeah, I, I think what we're seeing is, to your point, Dylan, a, a kind of a change in, in terms of how a lot of these buyouts are done, whether it's, you know, being increased in uh technology as a proportion or, or yeah, just like focusing more on growth oriented deals across all types of sectors. In the face of rising valuations, private equity firms have used carve outs as an investment strategy going back decades to put capital to work. It's arguably the most complex type of leverage buyout and it happens when a private equity firm buys out a division of a major conglomerate, takes it private and then often rebrands altogether. We've already seen it a lot this year notably when the Carlisle Group acquired Flender, a maker of electrical and mechanical drive systems from Siemens in a deal worth more than $2 billion. Here's Wiley and Dylan discussing the role of carve-outs as strategies shift within private equity. I mentioned carve-outs that, you know, PE firms aren't just sticking with the bread and butter of, you know, carve-outs of mid-market businesses aren't maybe as exciting, but we do expect an increase this year. So what's going on there? Yeah, and I think this actually plays off of your prediction pretty well, which is that we are seeing just an increase in pricing in the market. And so one of the ways that private equity firms are looking to combat that is with carve-outs. And so, you know, I think one of the big reasons is that corporates in 2020, you know, brought on a lot of debt onto their balance sheet in order to survive the pandemic. You know, a lot of them had to lever up pretty substantially. And what we're seeing now is, is maybe you know, street analysts and as well as kind of CFOs look to say, okay, let's maybe try to shore up this balance sheet a little bit. Let's maybe do, you know, one or two divestitures and, and maybe focus a little bit more on core competencies. And, you know, I think on the private equity side, they've always, you know, carve-outs have always been pretty attractive. And one of the things that we know in this, this report, but it was just interesting was uh, the Carlisle CEO said that they were as busy that, as they've ever been on large scale, you know, corporate investitures looking at, you know, the PE firms buying from, from some of these big corporates. And one interesting um, anecdote on, on this was the HIG transaction that happened, I think in 20, like Q3, 2020, they, they did a carve out from Johnson controls. And so they did carved out an HVAC company that has three distinct, you know, business lines and, HIG took control of that. It was a very complex deal. And then they actually carved out one of the three business lines from that carve out. So it was like, you know, carve out, then a carve out. So they sold off the higher priced um, piece of that business, you know, got a pretty attractive entry multiple when you account for what they were able to exit the other um, piece of the um, company at. And so, you know, through that complexity, they, they were able to get a pretty attractive looking company at a, a pretty reasonable valuation, something you maybe would have expected in 2013 or 14. And it was because they were, you know, willing and able to kind of go through the complexity of, of two carve outs in one deal. And so, you know, I think going forward, it's going to be something that 
PE firms are looking for and that corporates are, are also looking to the best. Absolutely. Not to mention the, the DOJ sort of guidance recently about you know, PE firms being a, uh, I don't know if the language they used was a, a preferred sort of acquirer of uh, forced divestitures, but definitely uh, on the list of potential acquirers. Yeah, and I, I, you know, to that point, one of the reasons that was given is because there's been a you know kind of wholesale change in terms of how private equity firms look to extract value from portfolio companies, and you know to hammer the point home, it's it's no longer about just slash and burn. There's a lot of firms that are actually looking to add value to you know do add-ons to kind of grow these companies and you know create something that is more valuable than what they started with, not just again some of the the baseline cost cutting, which is really just table stakes at this point. Regardless of which predictions come true, private equity will continue to have a growing role in the investment landscape. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of PitchBook's Invisible Capital Podcast. For more information, including links to the report and webinar covered in today's episode, visit pitchbook.com podcast. Also, please rate and review the show to help others discover the podcast and join us next week for a look at venture capital. Until next time. Invisible Capital is a production of PitchBook, executive produced by Kai Yao, hosted by Alexander Davis and Adam Lewis. This episode was produced and edited by Kai Yao. Cover art by Landon Early. Subscribe to Invisible Capital on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. Podcast.